This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Weissman. We focus today on two elections, one in Chicago, where five to six socialists were elected to the city council, a very big deal, even if they will represent just 10 percent of the council, and the other in Israel, where Netanyahu, according to our guest Yoav Pelid, is likely to win, even though his party and their bloc with far-right racist and religious parties is tied more or less with the anti-BB blue and white bloc. Netanyahu is the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. He's under indictment for one case of bribery and two cases of fraud. And Yoav says he's the only issue in the election. We'll get him to explain what we can expect in the election, but also we'll discuss Yoav Pellet's new book, The Religionization of Israeli society, which sheds light on how the country has moved from secular Zionism to an increasingly far-right expansionist religious Zionism, and how that helps us understand the election, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the relation between culture, politics, nationalism, secularization, and new social movements. And then we turn to Micah Utrecht, and he joins us from Chicago, where I said Five to six socialists were just elected to the city council. Micah argues that they will have outsized influence in determining the political issues, much as we have seen nationally with the election of Democratic Socialists to Congress. In his aptly titled article in The Guardian, America's Socialist Surge is Going Strong in Chicago, Micah writes that the socialist victories in Chicago were not a fluke. People are miserable with the status quo of austerity, and if Chicago's elections are any indication, it just may be that people are ready to try socialism. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And we're going to talk about two elections today, but right now we're going to talk about the one that's happening in Israel on April 9th, where Benjamin Netanyahu, who's also pretty universally known as Bibi, is really the only issue, according to Yoav Pellet, who I'm going to be speaking to. And he is the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. He's under indictment right now for one case of bribery and two cases of fraud. His Likud party apparently is in coalition with smaller far right wing parties. So we're going to get Yoav to explain what we can expect in this election. But then going beneath the surface, we're going to discuss his new book that is just out with Orit Pellet, and it's called The Religionization of Israeli Society, and it's just out by Rutledge, and it sheds light on how the country has moved from secular Zionism to an increasingly far-right expansionist religious Zionism, and how that, my understanding that, how we understand then not only this election, but the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as well as the relation between culture, politics, nationalism, secularization, new social movements and even how similar it is to other right-wing populist movements that we are well aware of right here in the United States. So with that, welcome Yoav Pellet to Jacobin Radio. Hello. Hi. I wanted to let the listeners know Yoav is a professor emeritus of political science at Tel Aviv University. 
He's also completed a law degree, so he has a wide range of interests, but mainly writes about Israeli politics, religion and politics, citizenship, ethnic relations, and democratic theory, citizenship theory, I should also say. And a recent volume is edited with John Ehrenberg was called Israel and Palestine, Alternative Perspectives on Statehood. And this book, again, is called The Religionization of Israeli society. It's a big word. And of course, you're going to go into it for us. But welcome to Jacobin Radio. Shoah Pellet. Thank you. So we have now the Israelis head to the polls. Netanyahu seems assured for victory, although I was glancing at all the newspapers today. Some say neck and neck. Some say that his party will win more, but that doesn't necessarily, or will win less, rather, to the Blue and White Coalition. I guess for American audiences, we need to first explain how the election works and how that could happen, and then, as you say, what you think is going to happen. So let's just start with the sort of political landscape of this election. Okay, well, first, Israel is a multi-party system, as I guess uh, everybody knows. And uh, the, the elections are, are proportional. In other words, we don't have electoral districts. The whole country is one district. And you vote for uh, a list of candidates proposed by a political party. And the list that can get more than 3.25% can get into the Knesset, the parliament, and then the seats in the Knesset, 120, are divided between those parties who pass this threshold of 3.25% proportionately to how many votes they received. But the real politics in Israel is not so much party politics, it's block politics. Mm. Because there's a very clear right-wing block made up of several parties. Likud is the main one, but there are others. And then there's the other block, called erroneously here called the left it's not the left i would say it's a more moderate right and that block for many many years now has, has been inferior in terms of number to the right wing block especially yeah. if you count only the jewish voters if you count the arab voters too then it's a little closer but still the right wing is a majority Maybe this is something that you should just immediately explain, because the way that you've just laid it out, Yoav, of course, this is the kind of parliamentary system that most people regard as far more democratic than the one that we have, where we have the winner-take-all and two parties, and third parties have no chance of literally making it in mainstream political arena to be considered. And then on the other hand, in this one, you're now saying the real issue, though, beyond that, between the number of members of parliament elected to the Knesset is the blocks, and that means the coalitions, I assume, that are formed in order to rule. So we have here the blue and white coalition, as you call it, kind of center-right, not center-left, and we uh, don't even hear about labor anymore. And then you've got Likud's block, which has gotten a lot of attention here in the United States because they've allied with, what, out-and-out fascists. Maybe you could explain what the two competing blocks are. Well, you're right. The right-wing bloc is the main party, is easily called, and they have what they call their natural allies, which are, first of all, religious parties, and the other right-wing parties. Now, in, in, in Israel, of course, religiosity correlates very highly with the right-wing politics, and uh, this time around, it, they really have uh, some uh, candidates in, in uh, some of those parties who could, can really be called fascists. This is uh, not considered a problem anymore. I mean, people who years ago would not have been eligible to run to the Knesset at all are now uh, considered to be legitimate candidates. 
And under circumstance, circumstances, one or two of them may end up being cabinet ministers. So uh, the whole picture moved very much to the right. On, on the other side, there is this blue and white party uh, led by uh, three generals and the TV personality. Right. And they are, uh, they are, they are more moderate. Basically, what, what distinguishes them from the other bloc is that they, they want to replace Bibi because Bibi is, is corrupt and is, uh, is all, all kinds of other nasty uh, qualities. So basically, they are the good government, the honest, the decent people who want to replace him. This is really what characterizes this this party, which electorally, according to the polls, is quite uh, the same size as Likud. But the block that they can form after the elections is much smaller. Well, the way you're describing it, of course, is something quite familiar to what to the landscape of American politics, too, between the mainstream neoliberal Democrats and not the sort of leftist insurgency within them now, and the right moving ever further to the right, and even with religious influence, although there's a lot of differences. But And as you uh, mentioned to me earlier, that there's no real difference between these two blocks on any major issue, for example, the either neoliberalism or Palestinian conflict, the issue is Bibi or Netanyahu. And I want you to try to explain that. And we're going to go after that into your book. But there's another point in the article that is in Haaretz yesterday by Chemi Shalev. I don't know if I've pronounced that right. Shalev. Shalev is that he also makes the point that if Netanyahu wins, he'll be indebted to Vladimir Putin, no less, even more so perhaps than Donald Trump. So that's intriguing. Let me hear what that's about as well. <laughs> well, you, you, you may have heard that just uh, yesterday or the day before, they returned the remains of an Israeli soldier who was missing in action for, since 1982 in uh, Lebanon. Mm. In, uh, there was a very famous battle, the, basically the last tank battle in Israel's history, in which it was badly defeated by the Syrian army. And there were many, many people killed, wounded, and and, uh, three prisoners of war and three missing in action. Nobody knew what happened to them, but everybody knew they were dead. But the bodies were not recovered. So now one of those bodies or the remains were recovered by the Russian army. You know, the Russian army is very deeply involved in Syria. Mm. And Putin did his gesture for Bibi right before the elections of returning the remains of this one soldier. They had a very fancy ritual in the Kremlin and so on and so on, which clearly is a, is a boost to Bibi's election campaign. So this is what he said. Now, we all know that Putin is not in the habit of giving free gifts. So the question is, what is he getting in return? Or what will he get in return? He wants Bibi to stay He wants, like he wants Trump. It's the same thing. It's the same kind of, of machination that is being played out. So this is what he meant, that Bibi owes more to Putin than to Trump, because Trump gave him a big gift too, you know, recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. But then there were a few missiles shot from Gaza, which subdued the celebration of that. So now Putin did that, and there are no missiles from Gaza, so everybody is talking about this gesture. Wow. So, okay. So given all of that, let's try to then delve into what the main point of your book is, which is called The Religionization of Israeli Society, just out by Rutledge, that, you know, sort of underlies, you know, the political developments in Israel. And I think that it's 
going to be incredibly illustrative for our audience because what you raise is the way that religionization has taken hold there. And it's how to understand how the country has moved towards a religious ideology to explain to itself and justify its expansive politics against the Palestinians. It also, I think, implies in some way that the far-right expansionist ideology, say, that came at the very beginning of Israel through Jabotinsky, which was already available to, I guess, Israeli politicians, has been turned into its more religious version. And I'd like you in your answer maybe to just begin to talk about how what was inadequate about the earlier revisionist ideology of Zionism and also then, and I know this is huge, how this relates to your point about neoliberalism as hegemonic in a way on both parties and how that explains the decline of labor Zionism. Right. Our main thesis is that the hegemony of labor Zionist hegemony, which lasted from you may say at least the mid-30s to, let's say, the mid-80s. Of course, it was, I mean, it was expansionist. It, it is a colonial settler movement. Zionism is a colonial settler movement, so expansion is, is the essence of it. But labor Zionism limited its territorial expansion in order to maintain a Jewish majority and in that way enable democracy to exist. But in 1967, with all these new occupied territories, there was a split within labor. Some people wanted to maintain the old policy, the old strategy. These were the older people, the foreign-born leaders. The younger people, the, most of them born in, in Palestine, wanted to keep the territories regardless of the demographic consequences. So basically, labor was paralyzed, couldn't decide what to do. And into this vacuum stepped the religious Zionists, especially the young generation of religious Zionists, and they started settling the territories, supposedly illegally, but with a wink from the government. And that began a process which, at this point right now, religious Zionism is becoming, not hasn't accomplished it yet, but it's becoming the culturally hegemonic in the Gramscian sense ideology of Israeli society. Now, revisionism was an outcast for as long as labor was hegemonic. Revisionism was outcast. In 1977, the Revisionist Zionist Party, of course, took power. But interestingly, they could not achieve cultural hegemony because basically what they wanted is to keep the territories, the occupied territories. But how do you justify that? All the strategic justifications and so on and so on didn't make sense. So they had to rely on religion. And that's why religious Zionism was in a position to become the hegemonic ideology. And this is part of of a long process of religion becoming more explicitly important politically. Greater number of people are becoming religious. You see uh, religious personalities, religious themes much more prominent in all spheres of social life, from the military to fine arts. And the fine arts, wow, yeah. Fine arts, yeah. Actually, the longest chapter in our book is about the fine arts, Mm. about the visual arts field, where this transformation is taking place maybe later than in in all other fields, for reasons that I will not get into, but we explain in the book. But there you see it very clearly how, from the very beginning, you have this strong religious element in Zionism including Zionist-produced visual art, 
but it's subdued to some extent because of the emphasis on the national aspect. But then, since 1967, and even more so, 73, the Yom Kippur War, then 2000, the Second Intifada, the religious element is becoming stronger and stronger. And in the field of fine arts, actually, their breakthrough only came in, in 2012, where there was a very important exhibition in a very important museum about feminists. Not uh-huh. about, sorry, by feminist religious artists. And that was the breakthrough, and since then, they've been moving very, very clearly into the mainstream. Well, I want to go back to that, Yoapella, but I think there's a couple things to explain further. And when you say, you know, that this movement or this process of religionization that began in 1967, but it's tied to expansion and war and creates a kind of crisis of legitimacy, as as you've said. I'm wondering if this was at all influenced by the various waves of immigration. And I'm thinking, who were the settlers in terms of like sometimes very what we could say, right-wing Americans, and then you get two different waves of Russian immigrants who are not religious but who are nationalist. And I just wondered if, just to put it into some perspective, how important that was to this process of religionization. The Americans were important for something else. The Americans were important for what is called the movement for Jewish renewal, which is religion under a secular guise. If you want, we can get into that. Mm-hmm. But the Russians, as you said, they were nationalists, uh, extreme nationalists, not through religion, just pure nationalism, even racism, you may say. Mm-hmm. But the moving power behind the settlement, and uh, which, by the way, people, I don't know if people realize, today there are three quarters of a million settlers. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of two-state solution is, is totally dead. But the moving power were genuine Israelis, people born in Israel, born in the 1950s, late 40s, 1950s, grew up in the whole system, educational system that religious Zionism has, an autonomous educational system. And they resented the fact that their parents, their elders, were playing second fiddle to labor. There was something called the historic alliance between labor and the religious uh, movement, signed in 1935, and they were clearly secondary within that alliance. These people resented it. They wanted to achieve leadership positions. There's also personal issues here, I mean, personal in a collective sense, in that the religious Zionists were not considered as pioneering as the labor Zionists, Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they were not considered as religiously adequate as the ultra-Orthodox. So they were caught in between and they were looking for a niche for themselves to get out of this deadlock. So they adopted this extreme nationalism, which luckily for them, 67 came, gave them the opportunity to practice it through settlement. And this is how they made their first move for cultural hegemony. This is fascinating. I'm speaking with Yoav Pellet, and his new book is called The Religionization of Israeli Society, written with his wife, Horip Pellet, who is a, she's a media artist and fine arts and media culture researcher. She's not with us today, but there's a huge part of the book that explains how religion, art, and life, you know, coexisted in this process of religionization. But Yoav, I want to go back just for a second, because you're raising all of these very complex issues that I 
think are critical to understand, especially as we begin to move into other factors that moved Israel so far to the right and its role in the world today. But one of the essential contradictions that you put forward in your book was that Zionism itself, even though, as you just said, now the pioneers were secular Zionists, they came out of the Holocaust, they were progressive, they appealed to progressive Jews around the world who were still, you know, in their majority, working class and progressive, I guess you could say. But then it raised this question about whether or not you could have a Jewish state that was secular, and that this, for you, became a real uh, not for you, but in your analysis, a dilemma that, that Zionism couldn't divorce itself from Judaism. And maybe you could just quickly explain that, and then we can move into how the process actually developed. Well, Zionism couldn't divorce itself from Jewish religion for two very obvious reasons. Zionism is the first and so far only political movement, Jewish political movement, that claimed that Jews worldwide were a nation. Now, if they are a nation, they need to have at least one cultural marker in common. You cannot be a nation without at least one. What do Jews all over the world have in common? Only the religion. Yeah, they didn't have language, for example. <laughs> no language, no territory, no history, no yeah. nothing. Yeah. So, so even Herzl, who was you know, a completely assimilated Jew you know, before he became a Zionist, before he established Zionism, he says, among many other things, we have to go back to our religion before we can go back to our land. So mm. from the very, very beginning, Zionism had this strong religious element in it. It was inevitable. The other reason is, what claim do the Jews have over this country, Palestine, or, or whatever you want to call it? It's only a religious connection. So because of these two, two reasons, Zionism could never really be a secular movement. and never was a secular movement. We also claim there are hardly any secular Jews in Israel. That's another story. But for a long time, they subdued this element because they needed to build a modern nation-state. And of course, there were international considerations that state had to be democratic because otherwise it wouldn't get international approval and so on and so on. But in 1967, like you mentioned, there was a legitimacy crisis around this whole project, and labor Zionism could no longer provide adequate answers. And then people started to turn to religion in two ways. One, going back, or in parenthesis, going back to traditional Jewish orthodoxy. This was, by the way, it was really started by Americans, mm. but numerically they were not significant, but the first yeshivas for uh, this uh, repentance, or however you want to call them, were, were established for American because we're talking about 67, you know, the, the height of the 60s, but right. the beginning of the disappointment of a lot of Jews from the 60s, from the counterculture, and so on and so on. And they began returning to Jewish religion, so there were yeshivas established for them in, in, in Jerusalem. But those places became very attractive for Israelis too, and so they expanded, and this is one aspect of the beginning of religionization. The other aspect is what I mentioned before, the movement for Jewish renewal, mm. which says we have to go back to Jewish tradition because you cannot separate religion and nationality when you talk about Jews, and we need to develop further nationalism, especially among the youth. But we have to do it under a secular guise because it will be more attractive because a lot of people can you know, don't want to get into the rituals and all the things you have to do as a religious Jew. 
So this would be light, Judaism light. Mm-hmm. But uh, the essence of it is the same. In the writings of these people, well, both groups, but the more interesting is the supposedly secular, is that they say very clearly, our youth will not be motivated to serve in the army if we don't instill with, in them more Jewish consciousness. They say it openly, so this is really the motivation here. And you have a universal draft as well, and I just wonder how this went over in a sense, because in your book you do go into the role of the military and IDF in propagating this or, you know, propagandizing on on religion rather than the other sort of more secular, I guess, notions about Zionism. And I just wonder how that went over. But then also maybe if you could contextualize it in terms of, say, first, like in the mid to late 70s, 1977, Likud comes to power, and it was committed to keeping occupied territories, especially the West Bank. And I'd like you to talk about the religious justification for that. And then when labor came back after that, and this would coincide with the kind of growth of neoliberalism around the world, but also in Israel and also led by labor. Right. Well, the religious justification for keeping the territories is very simple. God gave us this land and it's ours. And uh, these Palestinians, who knows what they're doing here, but at best they will be tolerated guests. But uh, this is not their land. This is our land because God gave it to us. So this is the religious justification, which is the only one that makes sense. There's no other justification that makes sense. Mm. Now, labor came to power twice since 1977 for short times. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time was under uh, Isaac Rabin, who was assassinated because he tried to make peace with the Palestinians. We don't, we still don't know, and we will never know how far that would have gone, because his assassination um, ended that project. But it's true, Labour was, a, I would say, the senior partner in the introduction of neoliberalism. The clear turning point was in 1985, because in the early 80s, there was a very, very rapid inflation, 450% a year, because Likud, when it came to power, tried to liberalize the economy, because the economy before that was very heavily corporatist. That was the power base of labor. So Likud tried to liberalize the economy. It it didn't succeed. It brought about uh, this uh, very rapid inflation. So then in 1984, they formed the National Unity Government, in which uh, Paris, the labor leader, was the prime minister, and they uh, adopted what was called the Emergency Economic Stabilization Plan, which was meant to stop inflation, and it did stop inflation immediately, but introduced neoliberalism in a very, very powerful way. And this is the, the economic plan that Israel still operates under since then until now. And of course, it's progressed tremendously. So you have all the elements of of, uh, neoliberalism, vast uh, privatization, deregulation, growing... uh, Inequality? Inequality, of course. There was just one thing that I wanted to ask you about that because I think it's really quite interesting. And that is that in talking about the role of labor in uh, leading the way toward the adoption of these neoliberal economics. And what we know about Israel, you know, we often hear about wonderful healthcare system that it has and that it's 100% universal. And I'd like to tell because you explained that, that this is a paradox, but it wasn't labor leading the way toward this 
this healthcare system, and maybe that will help us understand some of the politics, you know, and the and the rise of populism. Yeah, well, the, historically, the healthcare healthcare was provided by uh, semi-private, in the sense of not being government healthcare providers called the sick funds after the the way they were called in Germany. And the the main one was belonged to the Statut. People call it in English Labor Union Federation. It wasn't a Labor Union Federation. It was and still is a federation of political parties that runs labor unions. And it also yeah. ran a vast system of social services, including most importantly this healthcare system that at its height provided health care for 70% of the population, and almost everybody else got similar coverage from smaller systems. But the way it worked was that these healthcare providers did whatever they thought was necessary. Their, the fees, there were membership fees, which were based on your income, and they always ended uh, with deficits at the end of, the, of every year. Then the government would cover the deficit, and this is how it worked. At that time, the system was considered by experts the best in the, the, best in the world. What they did in, in 1994, they nationalized the health care only in the sense of, of the funding of it. In other words, instead of, of uh, voluntary fees that you pay to whoever you want in, uh, according to your income, they turned it into a uh, healthcare tax collected by the state, and then provided to those uh, healthcare providers who remained, and they still provide healthcare. But the, what, the most important issue here that causes the system to deteriorate so fast is that the law that did that said that if the needs of the healthcare systems, all of them together, exceed the income from the healthcare tax, the government will cover the difference from its budget, from the general budget. Hmm. But it did not say to what extent it will cover the difference. So the bureaucrats, the treasury bureaucrats, try to cover as little as possible. So the system is being underfunded in a tremendous way. So today, which is quite amazing, if, if you think historically, out of pocket, Expenses, the share of out-of-pocket expenses in the national uh, healthcare expenditures in Israel is second only to the United States. Wow, that's that is something we did not know about. So, let's go back now because, as you explain, you know, in the book, in this rise of religionization of Israeli society, that seems to be following a kind of similar path of right-wing populism and the kind of components of it seem rather similar too. And there's this, you know, entire phenomenon now of this first populist and nationalist shift. And there's a huge religious, uh, sorry, a huge neoliberal component and a huge religious component. And it sounds a lot like Trump's America. And, you know, of course, when you start to look at other places as well, maybe it's maybe it's even like, you know, Erdogan's Turkey. I don't know. But let's talk about the similarities and the differences, say, with the U.S., because that's, you know, so, so how does Netanyahu's Israel compare in his kind of populism and nationalism? Well, it's very, very similar. You have this very powerful uh, populist resentment by the, the people who are the victims of uh, neoliberal uh, economics. 
and the resentment makes them vote for the very people responsible for that, even though I think in both countries you cannot say that either the Labour Party in Israel or the Democrats in uh, in the US were not to blame for neoliberalism. Of course they are to blame. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, the, the, but the people, uh, for some reasons that need to be explored, decide to support the more extreme versions. Of, neo, of neoliberalism. In Israel right now, the most amazing phenomenon of this political season, of this election campaign, is this political party that came out of nowhere, led by this guy who is, on the one hand, is religious, he wants to rebuild the Third Temple, he wants to annex all the occupied territories and drive the Palestinians out voluntarily, he says, but he's also a libertarian in economics, and he's for legalizing, uh, legalizing no. marijuana. And that's probably what makes him popular, right? <laughs> and he's extremely popular. This yeah. was, I mean, he came out of nowhere, and people predict he will get six or seven seats in the Knesset, which is absolutely amazing. And a lot of his, his supporters are young. Many of them call themselves secular. Some of them, uh, old enough, voted previously for occasional vou- school vouchers. You know that? Mm. And, you know, it's exactly the whole neoliberal uh, recipe, together with this extreme uh, nationalism and, and crazy religiosity. And th- this combination is very popular. You can compare that to Trump or, or the Tea Party or, or whatever. And are, is this the party? This is Zehut, I think it's called. Is this the one that, that most people are quite shocked about that is also extremely racist? Or is that the... Okay. No, the... I the Kalanen? Well, he's racist enough, but the, extreme, the, the ones you think is extremely racist is, is another one. It's another version of the same thing. This is really the other one. This guy, the leader of Zehut, Zehut means identity, by the way. This guy, Moshe Feiglin, one of the things about him is that he's a very, very nice guy. Mm-hmm. He's soft-spoken. He's very polite. He, he, he doesn't get into this, uh, you know, verbal attacks that are so common here and so on and so on. I remember years ago I, I was with him on a, on a TV talk show. And, of course, we you know, disagreed vehemently. But after we, we finished, we went out. He asked me if I needed a ride. Oh. It was very, very nice. Yeah. This is part of his appeal. He's, he's, he's not the typical uh, hoodlum who's the you know, typical right-wing Israeli. So the party you're talking about, which Bibi more or less forced another re- religious extreme nationalist party, but, but less racist, if you can say that, joined them. Mm-hmm. Bring them in into that other party. These are uh, disciples of of Merkahana. and right. you know Merkahana was was outlawed in Israel years and ago. But now his his disciples are invited through Bibi into a legitimate right wing racist and everything, but legitimate political party. And I think they, they're characterized as a terrorist organization even here. Or were. Yeah, well, yeah, but anyway. You should say even in Israel. Yeah. Even in Israel, even right. In Israel. It, it was outlawed as a terrorist organization yeah. and uh, prevented from running to the Knesset the second time. First time he, he ran and he won, and he got himself into the Knesset. So, uh, But now uh, these people are, are legitimate, and th- these are real hoodlums. I mean, these are, you mm. know. 
So we're seeing a lot of uh, similarities. We've just about run out of time, and I want to, I guess, just finish um, you off, Pellod, with uh, actually how you see this election turning out, because you're talking about uh, a sort of move in the same direction as Netanyahu, but without him. And yet it's probably likely that Netanyahu's going to stay unless, I guess, he's arrested, uh, and that probably isn't going to happen. So how do you see what, I mean, is it possible to have this kind of politics without him in charge? And how do you see this election turning out, I guess? Well, the, the, the elections will, uh, will, will result with him uh, you know, forming the government again. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, based on a, on a block that would be even more right-wing than the current one uh, and more religious than the current one. And these two things go together here, of course. But then the, the question is what will happen with his personal political career. He faces uh, these three indictments that you mentioned. He will get a, a hearing in front of the attorney general. The attorney general here is the chief prosecutor. So, uh, you know, important people get a second chance, a hearing in front of the attorney general who will then decide whether to proceed with the indictments. Uh, everybody predicts that he has no choice. He will, uh, even though this man is a BBI appointee, but people say he will have no choice but to proceed with the indictments. Um, Bibi may try to pass a law in the Knesset that prevents a sitting prime minister from being indicted. The same thing as uh, uh, Trump. Trump. <laughs> yes. yeah. Although I understand in the U.S. the legal situation is not, is not that clear, but here they will probably try to pass a law like that. Then it will be challenged in the High Court of Justice, and then we'll see what happens. But So uh, there, is, there is a chance, I don't know how good of a chance, there is a chance that that uh, Bibi will have to uh, resign, but it will take, uh, I would guess, at least two years until that happens. He will have to resign if, if he's convicted uh, as a result of these indi- indictments, but this will, it will take a long time. So I think uh, it's fair to assume that, that Bibi still has good two years as, as prime minister ahead of him. And, and after that, I don't see any problem. There were several people who could replace him and will continue with the same policy. They will not be as charismatic as, as he is, but, you know, that's not, not the only thing. Say the, the graveyards are, are full of people who had no uh, replacement. Right. Well, you know, Pellet, we've run out of time, and there's just so much more, you know, if we wanted to scratch even deeper beneath the surface, because we didn't talk about, for example, you know, you said the two-state solution is dead. You've talked about that here on this program before, and the Palestinian, you know, what will happen there. But we just don't have time to go into all of that. But I want to thank you so much for shedding light anyway on the sort of components that have driven this right word process in Israel that is not only moved to the right, but is also religious. And for those of you who want to understand it more deeply, I highly recommend the book, The Religionization of Israeli Society by Yoav Pelid and Orit Herman Pelid. And Yoav is a professor emeritus at Tel Aviv University, and he's written many other books, including more recently with John Ehrenberg, Israel and Palestine, Alternative Perspectives on Statehood. And I want to thank you so much for joining us and staying up so late in Israel tonight. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away.
This is Jacqueline Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm so pleased to have Micah Utrecht with us yet again, and he's got a terrific new article in The Guardian, and the headline alone is worth the price of admission if you have to pay for you know reading it, which you don't, but it's called America's Socialist Surge is Going Strong in Chicago, and we're talking about elections today, and Chicago had a local election on Tuesday, and, and it's really pretty extraordinary. What happened, the DSA candidates or socialists won five or maybe six seats, and Micah will certainly correct me, to the city council. It's a very big deal, even if they're going to represent just 10% of the total city council, which has 50 members. And so we're going to talk about the analysis of that election. They also got a new mayor, and that's a post-ROM mayor. We'll, I guess, discuss whether or not Lori Lightfoot is is a progressive or not. But I think to begin, we're going to focus on the new city council, which features these new members. So Micah Utrecht is the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine. He's also the author of Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity. And that was published in 2014 by Verso. And I have to say, of all the books that have come out about the Chicago teachers' strike, which we're going to talk about, too, as a factor in this election, this is clear, well-written, comprehensive, with great analysis. So you should read it. And Micah is also a member of the Chicago DSA, which stands for... Democratic Socialists of America. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio, Micah. Thanks, Susan. Glad to be back. Okay, so let's just focus on what happened in this race, first of all. Who won, and is it five or six members? Do we know? We do not know. It is five or six. There are five races between the runoff elections that were on Tuesday and the first round of elections that uh, were in the end of February that have been called for members of the Democratic Socialists of America. There's a sixth with a candidate named Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, who is up against not a long time incumbent, but someone who comes from a family at a political dynasty in the city of Chicago uh, named Deb Mel. And we don't know the results of her ward race yet, but she was up by 64 votes at the end of election night, and they're going to be counting the ballots. So there will be between five and six members of the DSA who will be on the city council, which is incredible. I mean, 10 to 12 percent of major U.S. cities, city council will be populated by people who call themselves socialists. So the five or six of them are currently figuring out what they're going to be doing on the city council. There's talk of creating a socialist caucus on the council. There is a progressive caucus, as it's called, uh, but the extent to which that has been progressive or much of a cohesive unit to do anything is up for debate. People are swinging all over the place in terms of the, what, what, you know, what kind of policies that they uh, are, are carrying out. But uh, so it's good news that the five or six of them are going to be trying to uh, be an organized body that is to the left of the existing progressive caucus. And then there was also, of course, a new mayor who was elected, Rahm Emanuel, uh, finished, is about to finish his second term and decided not to run for a third term uh, for reasons which we discussed on this show a while back. Uh, because of the uh, the two main reasons being the way that the city's working class movement has really pounded him and attacked him uh, over his agenda of austerity, corporate giveaways, attacking the working class, and all of that, as well as the scandal around the Laquan McDonald shooting, which was the shooting of a black teenager by a CPD, a 
police department officer 16 times and the subsequent cover-up. So uh, Lori Lightfoot is the new mayor-elect of Chicago. So Rahm Emanuel not running and a new wave of progressive and left candidates winning on the, the city council of Chicago. It's a new day in Chicago politics. Well, and I think we have to underscore that, Micah, because, you know, this is the third largest city in America, and it's not yet a majority, you know, socialist caucus or grouping in the city council. But in your Guardian article, you state that it's the largest socialist electoral victory in modern American history. I don't know how far back you're going. We saw huge socialist victories in local elections in, what, 1912 and 15. But this is 100 years later. And is that what you mean by modern American history? Yeah, that's right. So this is, and and they also won by campaigning as on the issues that you just mentioned, but strong working class issues. And if, if Chicago, you know, is the center of the country geographically, perhaps it's a bellwether for how the country is going to be going in the next period. That's, I guess, the hope. But let's talk now about the specifics in terms of what, you know, a city council person, an alderman or an alderwoman, still called that, I think, can do. What are their opportunities? What are their challenges? What, how much, you know, funding capacity or taxing capacity do they have to carry out, you know, different policies, that sort of thing? Right. So the city council members in Chicago are really kind of on the front line of gentrification in this city. They're the ones who make decisions about things like zoning changes, which allow can allow for, for example, luxury towers to be built uh, where there was once working class housing, which is what's happening all over the neighborhood that I live in, Logan Square. Uh, they're the ones who make those decisions. And so there are those kind of day-to-day decisions that can really impact whether or not the city will be uh, a place for uh, you know, working class people to, to be able to live and to, to thrive in. Um, and, and they also you know, make decisions about the, the basics of, of uh, what's going on in the city, ranging from uh, questions of funding uh, uh, or, or funding, and just questions around public education uh, in general. Uh, there's questions about uh, what policing will look like in the city or opportunities to uh, reprimand uh, police abuses, which exist. Uh, there, there's all kinds of uh, opportunities for uh, these city council members to carry out um, a more, uh, you know, as I said, as I said, bold and anti-austerity agenda in the city. Now, of course, as you mentioned, five or six uh, is a large number in comparison to where we've been, but there are 50 members total on the council. There are a couple members who don't call themselves socialists but are strong progressive and pro-working class candidates, but you still would not have more than, um, much more than 20% of the council. So there's not exactly a majority of pro-working-class, anti-austerity people on the council. Uh, but I think it's important to point out that if you look at the national level, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the only socialist, or one of the only socialists, one of the two self-identified socialists in the House, and yet, of course, she is able, uh, through uh, being in the media every day and speaking out very boldly for a pro-working-class agenda, she's able to really dictate uh, what the terms of the political conversation in the city, or in this, excuse me, in this country, uh, are. She's really changed how we talk about politics in this country. Well, so that's, my hope is that yeah. uh, on the local level that these city council members might be able to do something similar if they take really uh, continue to take really bold stances for the working class. Well, and this is really important, Micah, and this is actually, as as we've seen, and, and even, I guess, aided and abetted by Fox News's, uh, you know, 
fear of socialism and talking about Norway as if it was, you know, one of those SH countries, <laughs> clearly bringing it, a lot of these issues to the fore so that the mainstream of America is acquainted and seems to like what these socialist policies would bring forward. But let's go back because most people who know anything about Chicago in the last period know that there was a spectacular teacher strike in 2012, that the Chicago Teachers Union led the way that we've now seen in the red state strike wave and now in in California as well. And that Rahm Emanuel, the Democratic governor, Arne Duncan, the Democratic education secretary and the Democratic Party in general have pushed privatization, charterization. And after that successful teacher strike, Rahm Emanuel kind of retaliated with, I don't know if that's the right word, but it seems like it, that he retaliated with school closings. Now, one big difference, and I learned this from your book, Micah Utrecht, was that unlike uh, California, the school board is not elected, it's appointed by the mayor. Is this something that the city council can change and try to democratize at least the direction of education? Well, the currently the, the, the mayor appoints the, uh, the school board of the city, and this is something that has been instituted in cities around the country, cities that are wanting to carry out this neoliberal education reform agenda. Uh, in this election, it's a real testament to the power of the CTU and this broader working class movement around it that on the mayoral level, the major candidates uh, for mayor, the two that made it to the runoff, both felt the need to run on uh, uh, pushing for an elected representative school board in the city. Uh, whether or not uh, the one uh, the candidate who won, Lori Lightfoot, actually believes in that or not uh, is sort of less uh, interesting than the fact that she felt compelled to run on it. So that is a central demand of the, uh, of the Chicago Teachers Union and of the, of the movement that's around it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a real which side are you on question And then you have, as you mentioned before, the gentrification issue. But these two issues are decisive sort of policy areas that don't require necessarily the ability to raise funds to carry them out the way other sorts of things do. But then the third one, and that relates very much to Lori Lightfoot being elected mayor as African-American and gay, and even though some people are seeing her as more progressive than you do, uh, it certainly speaks to the issue of police violence. The other thing Chicago is known for besides the teacher strike was the horrific violence, police violence, uh, the impunity with which the police seem to be able to kill people, and then, of course, the torture scandal that has been ongoing, what, for at least a decade, where uh, uh, prisoners were routinely tortured with electrical prods and other sorts of things. So how much did that shape the election of the new mayor, and, and what do you think the response will be? And how does it relate yep. to the city council? Yeah, before I answer that question, just let me say briefly that I think it's important to note that the what happened in this election is a result of the city's left-wing, progressive wing of its labor movement being willing to work with leftists, with socialists, with the people who, with candidates who call themselves openly socialists. Uh, and that's not something that we see in, uh, from the labor movement in a lot of cities and states and on a national level. Um, so that's a really important thing to know about this election, that their you know, leftists took over uh, the Chicago Teachers Union and, and our leadership positions of other unions in the city, and uh, it's their willingness to, to, to you know, embrace the rising tide of socialism in, in the country and in the city 
uh, and that's that's what helped lead to so many electoral wins happening. But to your question about policing, as I mentioned before, this has been central to what's gone on in this city lately. That there was clearly a uh, massive cover-up of this uh, shooting of Laquan McDonald, and that really took out quite a few uh, major political figures in the city. The former state's attorney, Anita Alvarez, uh, Gary McCarthy, the former police chief, and then Rahm Emanuel, uh, although he right. claims that he wants to go spend more time with his kids. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, he, it, it's clear that he didn't think that he could win an election on the on the heels of such a, a really just disgusting uh, scandal and cover-up that his administration participated in. So th- those those questions are going to be continue to be central to uh, to the, what what politics look like in this city. And, you know, the, there's the spectacular cases that you mentioned, like the torture case and like the uh, 17-year-old who was shot 16 times. But there, uh, even the more day-to-day policing, I mean, every every couple months you hear, you know, a story in the Sun-Times last month, for example, about how uh, Chicago police spent $113 million on police misconduct lawsuits last year and something like half a billion dollars in less than the, the past decade. So the... Clearly, there is this kind of culture of abuse and impunity and racism among the city's police department. There's just scandal after scandal that comes out. And the numbers like that, $113 million in one year on police misconduct lawsuits, suggest that the day-to-day practices of policing are just as racist and brutal. We have about a minute and a half left. Uh, Time always flies. But I wonder, Mike, if you could then talk about the role of DSA and these socialists and how you mentioned in your article that they campaigned on things like affordable housing, rising rent costs, the gentrifying neighborhoods and other issues and how this, you know, I guess what the relationship is between the things that the organization has been pushing and now what, what we hope will be commanding the city council to pay attention to. Yeah, all five or six of these candidates who have won or will win are members of the Democratic Socialists of America. They're also members of other community groups or union, you know, political formations that, you know, it's not just DSA that's involved in any one of these elections. But in case of, for example, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who won re-election, who was the only DSA member who was on the city council, his race was one in which he made it very explicitly about uh, him versus the big real estate developers in the neighborhood who are looking to gentrify the neighborhood. Likewise, uh, affordable housing was a, a very central topic for uh, these other uh, races, the, the four other races that took place. Uh, and people talked uh, very openly about the developers being a kind of class enemy. They were the, uh, they spoke in class struggle terms. And so I think going forward, uh, that's going to have to be central to their messaging their continued uh, naming of a, of a class enemy in the city of Chicago and, of course, you know, allying with you know, the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America and the best of the city's labor movement to fight those forces. Perfect. Well, we're going to have to end it there, but I'm glad that we end on a note of hope. And the article that you should read in The Guardian is Socialist Surge in Chicago by Micah Utrecht. Go look at Jacobin Magazine as well. There's a lot of good articles there, including a recent one on the Chicago victory. Micah Utrecht is the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine, and he's the author of Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity. He's a member of the Chicago DSA, and he wrote this great article on the socialist surge. The title's worth reading it for. And Micah, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.